Northwestern University expands its computer science faculty with a $5 million donation from IBM. And I'll talk with Crane's John Pletz and Cassandra West about equity, including challenges facing black business owners and ongoing equity issues in the cannabis industry. Scaling is, is a challenge that I often hear about from startups, that that's, the, that's one of the biggest problems they face. What about being a Black-owned business makes scaling particularly hard? Because I think it's the thing that business owners generally struggle the most with. Access to capital, everybody will agree that that's the hardest part. And not having maybe the the rich uncle or, or some sophistication with different ways of financing a business. I'm Amy Guth, and this is Crane's Daily Gist for Monday, November 15th. In these uncertain times, it's important to have people you trust by your side. When 11,000 local business owners needed a Paycheck Protection Program loan, they turned to their Wintrust banker to secure funding because that's a relationship they can count on. Businesses are navigating some of the biggest challenges they will ever face. Wintrust is here to answer their calls. They'll answer yours, too. Start the conversation at Wintrust.com slash Daily Gist. Member FDIC. All right, this week I welcome John Pletz and Cassandra West here for the Reporters Roundtable. We've got lots of things to talk about. Cassandra, I want to talk with you about Crane's equity section. And John, I want to talk with you about the latest with the ongoing equity and diversity challenges in the cannabis industry. Cassandra, let's start with you. Tell me about this month's focus of the equity section. This month I wrote about building Black-owned bigger. So I talked with Black entrepreneurs in Chicago and how they are scaling up. You often hear about black businesses being small. And I started with the question, well, where are the larger black businesses? And through my reporting, I was able to talk with several that I thought were interesting and up and coming. One I just happened to learn about, it's called the Black Bread Company, started by three young men in their mid-30s. They were best friends. They went to Kenwood Academy. And during the uh, protest last year, one of them was in the grocery store dispatched by his wife with a list. And at the top of the list was bread. So he was in the aisle of a Pete's market looking for bread. And he wanted to buy a brand that was black owned. He couldn't find any after an hour in the aisle Googling. So he left the store stopping to pick up some food at a black owned restaurant. And he had an idea to start a sliced bread company. So he called his two best friends and the idea just jailed and off they went. So the story starts with that anecdote of, of those three young men. And then I talk with some other business owners. I listened to a conversation with John Rogers at an event that was co-sponsored by the Chicago Booth School. And he mentioned how Chicago used to be a center for Black-owned businesses. There were a number of Black-owned businesses here and they no longer in existence or are different form of themselves. And also with the renewed focus on equity and supporting Black-owned businesses, the Civic Committee has decided to look into ways in which it can support and help Black-owned businesses scale up. So that's really the gist of the story. What Black entrepreneurs are doing to get a bigger slice of the pie and also to reach new markets to go beyond the typical businesses that have sort of defined um, the Black entrepreneur. And what, what was most challenging about, about this month's section? 
The most challenging was finding data that I thought would be readily available. I mean, there's data out there, but it didn't really show me what I was expecting to find, like the number of Black-owned businesses, specifically in the Chicago area. But thankfully, Cranes will be publishing this week its list of the largest minority-owned businesses. So that's a compliment to the section. And actually, it was sort of accidental that that's coming out at the same time um, I planned the story. What narrative do you think this month's equity section challenges the most? Oh, I think it challenges the idea that maybe people might think, maybe as I did before I started reporting, that Black entrepreneurs aren't as focused on growing their businesses. That's really not true, at least from the people I, I talk to. So I would you know, derive from that that there is real interest in growing uh, businesses and, and the scaling up. But I also think that you have a younger class of entrepreneurs who are sophisticated with social media and other platforms that allow them to reach new markets and to also even create their own brands. There's one young entrepreneur I speak with who started her own beauty brand after seeing a friend of hers in the LA area scale up her business in over three years into a multi-million dollar business. So there's the belief that it can be done, um, that that businesses that these businesses can can really grow and reach beyond the audiences or the customer base that is typically patronized Black-owned businesses. Scaling is is a challenge that I often hear about um, from startups. That that's the that's one of the biggest problems they face in any industry. What about being a Black-owned business makes scaling particularly hard? Because I think it's the thing that business owners generally struggle the most with. Well, access to capital, everybody will agree that that's the hardest part and not having, I mean, maybe the, the rich uncle or some sophistication with different ways of financing a business. But again, I think, you know, the internet has allowed information to be more readily available and people are partnering in different ways than before. So I think that is helping some of these entrepreneurs to to make a a leap that they weren't able to make before. But it, but yeah, it's the, the capital and the financing that's usually the biggest barrier. I want to follow what you just said, that you felt like people were partnering in different ways than they used to. What what specifically are you seeing shift? They're working with other entrepreneurs to co-brand themselves or their, their products. They're reaching out to larger corporations. A lot of ties back to the George Floyd murder. There was more interest from large corporations to support brands by Black-owned companies. And so you've seen a lot more of that. Target, Sephora, Walmart. If you go into some of these stores, sometimes you'll see displays that are actually promoting, you know, the vendors, the Black-owned vendors and the products that they're they're making. Sure, sure. John, I want to shift to you. You and I have talked about travel so much lately, which you also cover, but we haven't talked as much about the cannabis industry especially that that equity piece that was so central to legalizing recreational sales in Illinois. So what, what are you seeing there lately? Well, it, it's still the biggest challenge in that industry. You know, the, the lack of progress on social equity, diversifying that industry, making it less white male owned. It's about a year late, but the state finally got around to saying, here are the people who are going to have these new dispensary licenses. There's 185 of them. And they know who they plan to give these licenses to, but the licenses themselves are still in limbo because 
there's a court challenge. There's a dozen lawsuits pending and a judge in Cook County basically told the state, you know, until I rule on this, you can't give final approval to these licenses. So we're not really much more diverse than we were before. And it's, you know, it's a continuing struggle, but that issue is playing out across the cannabis industry. And, you know, we're not, we're not alone in this by any stretch, you know, which is probably cold comfort to people who, who want to see some changes. And what struck me is that there was a report out of California this week that said that their progress on social equity has, has been, you know, really underwhelming, just not a lot of licenses issued. And, uh, even those who've gotten licenses have had, you know, to Cassandra's point, you know, one of the biggest challenges is capital. Okay, congratulations, you've got a license. Can you actually, does that actually turn into a business? And that's something they really worry about here in Illinois. But what also strikes me as interesting is New Jersey, you know, one of the other states that is going down the path of recreational marijuana, like Illinois, they're just starting to put out their rules to diversify and bring, you know, equity to cannabis. And there's not much defined there. So in Illinois' case, for all of its flaws, it's having some real execution challenges in getting those licenses out. But, you know, Illinois actually went through the process of defining what are the standards, what what is what qualifies you for social equity. And I don't think a lot of other states have done that. So, you know, this this one is it's just really a work in progress. It's frustrating for a lot of people, but I, I, I think that that's going to be the way it plays out here and elsewhere is it's just going to be really uneven and it's not going to be as fast. And I don't think it's probably going to be as successful as everybody wants it to be. Mm, I'm surprised to hear about California. I mean, I feel like they were so early into this. What about Colorado? That was another early state to adopt recreational use. Are they having any more success? They're just starting to really get into the thick of this as well. Sort of generation two of licensing. There's a program in Denver. The individual municipalities may have set limits on how many licenses they're going to issue. And in Denver, it was capped. And, you know, over the course of, you know, five years or so, they had some availability of licenses to hand out and they were going to go through that process. And Colorado legalized before there was really a push in the industry to say, boy, this is a very not diverse industry and we ought to do something about that, you know, way pre-George Floyd and, and many other things. And the city of Denver said, hold on, we're going to issue these licenses and the only people who are eligible for those licenses are going to be social equity applicants. But it's not real clear to me, what are those criteria? What does it get you? And, and will you get into the industry? So, you know, it's a work in progress. They aren't any further along on social equity than anybody else. So, this thing is 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 really a moving target. It is probably uh, the most challenging piece of the the cannabis industry. And so, I mean, as Chicago is sort of shaping up to be this hub, there's so much happening kind of on the corporate level in Chicago with you know Cresco and Green Thumb Industries and and others. Is there a fix that could be done kind of up there at the corporate level to try to make it more equitable? The companies have tried to get involved in helping you know, the next generation of applicants, they've, they've all run programs for social equity uh, licensees. And that's, that's the way they're, they're trying to help. I don't know that you're going to see any, any sort of legislative fix that would, you know, somehow bring social equity to the existing multi-state players. I'm not, I don't even know what that would look like. 
But they have been partners to some degree in both the legislation and trying to, you know, sort of form up a support network to the extent they can is saying, you know, we can help perhaps get these new social equity applicants trained or at least get them some help in getting into the business. It sounds like maybe you're not too optimistic that this is going to be turned around very quickly. No, I just think all the signs point to it's a process and it's a process that has been slower than anybody wanted or expected. That's where it is. But I also think as I look around at other states, I'm not seeing any other great examples of somebody who got it right. You know, I think a lot of people were hoping that Illinois was was the map to follow. And pieces of that are showing up in other states. But clearly, you know, Illinois hasn't cracked the code on it yet. I'm also not seeing that other states uh, have either. A long way to go, and I'm sure that we will revisit the topic many times. Okay, now is the time where we turn to other stories not on your beats that had your attention. What, what's been on your mind this week? What, what caught your eye? One story that's popped up um, that we've written a lot about, hopefully, John, I'm not stealing this from you, is Rivian. You know, I heard this morning that it had an IPO and its market value <laughs> exceeds that of, I think, Ford or General Motors at this point, which is exciting and uh, probably not so surprising given all the interest here in Illinois on electric vehicles. Sure, sure. Yeah, that one's been amazing for sure. (laughs) Sort of every step of the way, Mm -hmm. both the interest in EVs and also the IPO market just continues to be explosive. Yeah. And Subaru, uh, they unveiled their electric vehicle that they did in partnership with Toyota. There's you know, looks looks like a Subaru with like transformer headlights. Yeah, you're going to see a whole lot of that in the next few years as, as, you know, all the automakers want to switch to the majority of their production being EVs. You're going to see a lot of new cars in a really short period of time. How is this chip shortage, though, going to figure in that if that continues? I think that it may delay it may delay some rollouts, which might not be the worst thing in the world. Uh, I think the the initial chip shortage will Uh, manifest itself in two ways. You're going to continue to have some supply shortages, getting new cars, actually getting your hands on the cars that have been introduced is going to be harder. The production volumes aren't anywhere nearer than they need to be. And that supply chain doesn't seem to be getting worked out anytime immediately. But the really interesting part is what's going on for those new models you talked about now. The ones you're starting to see introduced now have been in the works for several years. What's really going to be fascinating are the ones that you see in two years. Because the chip shortage is forcing the, um, the automakers, like anybody else who makes any kind of product with a chip, to come up with ways to use chips that you are sure you can get. Or if you had to have multiple different chips, depending on the supply chain, in a way that previously it was find your chip, find the one that you like, design that into your, pro- uh, your product because you can always get it and it's fine. And the way that people have been designing uh, the R&D folks I've talked to in the last, you know, nine, 10 months, it's all about designing cars or products for the chips you can get or the chips you think you'll be able to get. And that'll have some some really interesting uh, effects on the products we see down the road. All right. What other stories were on your radars? The, the big one for me this week was the, the billionaires in, in Illinois uh, taking shots at each other. You know, uh, I know. Ken Griffin was uh, in front of an open mic again from Citadel and said he's not he's not real uh, impressed by the job the governor's doing. And the governor shot back pretty, pretty quick that 
he's not wild about uh, about Ken's opinion of him either. So, man, how that plays out is is really going to be interesting. But I don't see either one of those people going away anytime soon. And uh, it's a long time till election day. So I think you'll see more from both or hear more from both. We've got a lot of billionaires squaring off right now. We've got them squaring off here in Illinois. We've got them squaring off about space. There's a lot of billionaire squabbles happening. <laughs> Hashtag billionaire problems. Indeed. One story that was on my radar this week that I thought was interesting was, and it's it kind of, I thought it would have a little more fanfare, but Facebook's parent company, Meta, says it's going to remove the ability to target ads based on identity-based categories, which is the biggest move they've made around targeting. Um, so like race and ethnicity and religion, sexual orientation, even health conditions, they are going to remove the ability to target. So that's kind of, that's the broadest action they have ever taken to change the way ads are targeted. And that's going to start next year. But I thought that was really interesting given how, like what a big piece of Facebook slash Meta's business that is. Yeah. I'll be interested to see how that plays out, you know, because that happens against the backdrop of a lot of change that's already going on in targeting. You know, I believe Google um, has said that they're going to uh, basically pull the plug on cookies as a way to add, uh, target uh, by 2023. That keeps moving further out. So I think everybody is having to rethink, you know, based on, um, you know, privacy provisions that started out in the EU and, and you know, other, other things that are going on. So part of me wonders, well, are you doing this because you basically have to do it? And are you not going to target at all? Or are you just going to not target in the way that you previously have? You know, it's been sort of a blunt object, frankly. Um, but are you still going to target? And what new and interesting ways will you be targeting us uh, in the future? Yeah, I have that one that question, too. So then what will you target me through? Like what information will you glean if you're, if you're going to take out all of that? Boy, that's going to be a big topic next year, I feel like. And, you, you know, you said something really important, I think, that I've said many times, and that is I'm always fascinated to watch what is happening in EU courts because they have been so many steps ahead of us around data privacy that um, I, I always feel like that just watch what happens, especially in Ireland. I feel like I, like Irish courts were like they, they were very, even maybe four or five years ago, we're starting to be like, mm not we're not going to do this. And then French courts were, have been very involved. German courts. So I think that's going to be, um, if you want to know what's happening here, look what happened a couple of years ago in European countries in those courts around data privacy. Lots of things swirling around this this week, lots to do, but I appreciate you both taking time to talk it through today. Thanks, Amy. Glad to do it. Thanks, Amy. Coming up, a former U.S. Bancorp staffer alleges racist lending practices with a lawsuit that comes just weeks after Attorney General Merrick Garland announced an initiative targeting redlining and promised more investigations into the practice. We'll talk about that and more right after this. Is your student taking the SAT, ACT, or a high school admissions test this year? Academic Approach wants to help them get prepared. Academic Approach's time-tested tutoring programs ensure students grow their academic skills, improving their performance on standardized tests. The work together begins with a consultation with an Academic Approach director who will meet with you and your student to discuss their unique needs. Then Academic Approach creates an effective, fully customized study plan that targets their goals 
goals and matches them with a tutor who will be by their side, guiding them through instruction and practice throughout their tutoring journey. Get in touch today to learn how academic approach can help your student transform into a confident, successful test taker. Learn more at academicapproach.com slash daily gist. You're listening to Crane's Daily Gist with Amy Guth. Northwestern University will expand its computer science department after a $5 million donation from IBM. The donation was made in honor of former IBM CEO Virginia Rometty, a leading female figure in tech and longtime member of the school's board of trustees. The gift will create two endowed professorships in computer science meant to focus on AI and machine learning. And that will allow Northwestern to strengthen its offerings as the number of computer science majors has more than doubled to more than 106,000 between 2013 and 2017, that according to the Computing Research Association. Rometty, who worked at IBM for nearly 40 years before stepping down as CEO in 2020, said in a statement that creating, quote, trusted, responsible and inclusive artificial intelligence is a central challenge of our time. The $5 million gift from IBM follows in-kind donations of analytic software, cloud computing resources, and equipment to Northwestern's journalism and medical schools coming in at over $10 million. Airlines rolled out several sustainable fuel initiatives in the lead-up to COP26. Sustainable Aviation Fuel, or SAF as it's known, a substitute for the fossil-based kerosene powering today's jet engines, is derived from a variety of things, from waste oils and fats to sugar crops and some trees and grasses. British Airways operated a carbon-neutral flight to Glasgow, while EasyJet will use an SAF blend on 42 flights out of London Gatwick. United Airlines committed to buying 1.5 billion gallons of SAF made from forest and crop waste. And if scaled quickly, SAF could help airlines fend off calls for emission-related restrictions on flying and clear the way for a return to growth after impacts to the industry throughout the COVID pandemic. One crucial selling point of SAF is that it offers a way to make immediate progress toward cutting CO2 emissions, given that more impactful changes like hydrogen and electric-powered planes are not yet a thing. SAF is made without extracting more fossil fuel and can be blended for use in existing aircraft. One of the main challenges, though, is cost. SAF is typically three to four times costlier than kerosene, so airlines aren't buying it in bulk just yet. And so as a result, very little of it is being produced. However, greater volumes will bring down prices, Boeing's chief sustainability officer, Chris Raymond, told Bloomberg. He also said a combination of tax incentives and levies on traditional jet fuel could also encourage higher SAF usage. But another obstacle is that, like conventional kerosene, SAF emits carbon dioxide and other pollutants into the atmosphere. Any SAF's life-cycle greenhouse gas emissions depend on the feedstock and the process of converting it into jet fuel. But some forms risk generating even more carbon dioxide than the conventional fuels that they replace. That according to a working paper published in March from the International Council on Clean Transportation. For example, the report said that fuel derived from municipal solid waste with high plastic content can produce as much as almost twice the amount of CO2 as burning regular jet fuel. Yet there are few current alternatives other than drastic cutbacks in flying. Even once they're a thing, electric and hydrogen planes will operate only shorter flights at first. The International Air Transport Association Director General Willie Walsh, who previously led British Airways parent IAG, expects airlines to continue buying conventional jetliners for another 15 years and notes that they typically last for two decades or more.
Diana Burkett-Rakow, the vice president for public affairs and sustainability for Alaska Airlines, told Bloomberg that ultimately a combined approach is going to be needed. The carrier says that increasing the use of SAF, improvements in operations and air traffic management, as well as buying new, more fuel-efficient planes will be a start. But beyond that, it will rely on propulsion advances and investments in startups, along with offsets to help solve the net zero problem. Advocate Aurora Health will be among the first health systems in the nation to pay at least $18 an hour starting on December 5th. The 10,800 lowest paid full-time workers, which are largely in food and environmental services, at the system's operations in both Illinois and Wisconsin, will see hourly wages rise, the health system said in a statement, which also said that another 20,000 hourly workers who already make more than $18 an hour, including pharmacy techs and licensed practical nurses, will also receive raises. The system with 26 hospitals employs more than 75,000 people. The wage increases come at a time at which the healthcare labor market is tightening and inflation is rising nationwide. Advocate Aurora Health had previously increased their minimum wage to $15 an hour at the start of 2021. A black loan underwriter who said he was fired due to racism alleges that U.S. Bancorp engaged in redlining, that is discriminating, against people of color when lending. John Spann also claims in a lawsuit that he endured what he described as a toxic and racially hostile work environment during his time in the firm's indirect auto lending group. In the complaint filed in Illinois federal court earlier this month, Spann alleges that discriminatory practices and targeted harassment eventually led to his dismissal. And this comes just weeks after Attorney General Merrick Garland announced an initiative targeting redlining and promising more investigations into the practice. The action also arrives amid heightened public awareness of racial inequity and as banks and other institutions reckon with systemic inequality and diversity within their organizations. In a statement, U.S. Bancorp said it doesn't condone discrimination of any kind in the workplace or against customers and denied the discrimination allegations. Since the murder of George Floyd by police in Minneapolis, where the lender is based, the firm has pledged millions to address social and economic inequality and has established a program intended to build black wealth. But according to the complaint, Spann worked as an underwriter focused on a region that included Iowa, both Dakotas, Illinois, Indiana, Michigan, Wisconsin, and Minnesota, and alleges that the unit responsible for providing auto financing through car dealerships harbored an openly racist environment. And in addition to receiving racist comments from colleagues at work, Spann also said he was eventually assigned to handle loans in South Chicago and its suburbs, an area avoided by other underwriters as part of a more widespread practice described in the complaint as, quote, racist loan application hot potato. That's Crane's Daily Gist for now. Check in on our continuous news feed at chicagobusiness.com. Thanks so much to both of today's guests, John Pletz and Cassandra West. You can follow all of the Crane's Daily Gist conversations on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to get your audio on demand. And remember to rate and review Crane's Daily Gist because that's the best way for others to discover our episodes. Our show is produced by Todd Manley at Earsight Studios. I'm Amy Guth. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll meet you right back here next time.